I was adopted when I was nine years old. Um, my birth father was cruel. Uh, he was a, a cruel person who lied to me, took from me, hated me, uh, wanted me dead, and basically left me to die. Uh, that's how he treated all his children. He was evil. And we were more slaves than sons, more orphans than children. But then when I was nine, my father found me. And dad brought me home and made me a part of his family, grafted me in, adopted me as his son. Now perhaps some of you are thinking, Ajay, we didn't know that was a part of your story. Maybe others of you who know me better, especially from childhood on, are saying, your parents are actually sitting here today, right? <laughs> but here's the thing. That is my story. And in some way, that is your story as well. You may be in different stages of that story. The details might be different. But that is our story. And maybe none of that makes sense to you yet. Just give it a few minutes. It will. So, so what I want to do is I want to back up for a second and tell you what we've been doing. We've been preaching through this series that we've called Christ Crucified. And in these series of sermons, each week we've been trying to consider all that God accomplished for us through Christ Crucified. What happened when Jesus Christ died on the cross? Why was Christ crucified and what did God pull off when he was? If you've been here over these weeks, you know that we've sort of just added one layer of beauty onto another as we've considered all the things that God has done for us, all the benefits that are ours through Christ crucified. Today, we add another layer to all that we've been considering. We consider the truth of our reconciliation through Christ crucified. The idea that we were enemies of God, Romans 5, 8, but that in love for us, while we were yet enemies of God, Christ died for us and reconciled us to himself. He restored the relationship and repaired the relationship of enmity between us and God. And that moreover, and more specifically, our reconciliation happened through adoption. Through adoption. The, the truth of the scriptures is that through Christ crucified, through Jesus' death on the cross, we were adopted into the family of God, made members of his family, made the children of God. That's the truth we're going to consider today. And before we go any further, here's what I want you to hear. We have considered some beautiful truth. So if you've been here over these weeks, I'm hoping that your heart has just been washed over and over again by all the splendor and all the wonder of what God has done for us. And yet what we're talking about today is higher and deeper and sweeter still. Right? That's a huge statement considering we've talked about justification and propitiation and expiation and all these great truths. And what I want you to hear is that what we're considering today is higher and deeper and sweeter than maybe all the rest. It's the truth that theologians have said stand even above justification, that this is the blessing that is ours through the gospel, that we have become the children of God. I want to even say to you that if you find Christianity boring, if you don't understand it, if you find your hard heart, your heart hard, then what I would counsel you and plead with you is to fast from every other thought and press into the truth of our adoption. 
and what it means that we are now the children of God. That's what I'm going to pray that the Spirit will do on you. So join me in prayer for a moment, and then we'll press into the Word together. Our Father, we address you as such because of our Savior Jesus Christ. We ask that you would be with us in this time, that you would help us to hear your Word, that our hearts would be washed by it, that we might grow in affection for Jesus Christ, that we might be drawn closer to you, that we might consider all the wonder and splendor of the truth of our adoption. We pray that you would cause us to love Christ more and be Christ's men and women in this world through what we hear now. We pray that you would affect change in how we see ourselves and even how we see our world through this time together. Don't let it be common. Speak to us from your word. This is our prayer. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, if you have a Bible, you can turn to John chapter 8. We're in page 894. So what I want to do is I want to just set the stage for you and just sort of set the table and give you a frame into which we're going to dive into what we're talking about today. Just some text to consider and introduce, and then we'll unpack more of it together. So John chapter 8, page 894. We're picking it up at verse 31. In John 8, what you're going to find is Jesus is having a conversation with the religious leaders, the Jews or the Pharisees. And, and if you know the New Testament or if you've been here with us for any time, you know that these conversations are usually not pleasant ones. They're not friendly. When Jesus is talking to the religious leaders, it's usually more like a boxing match and they're going to go after one another. There's no pleasantries involved. They're usually grabbing at one another's throats. And that's what you're going to find when you get to verse 31. Jesus has already been speaking, and the Jews have already been rejecting and opposing everything he's saying. In verse 31, he says, If you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. So, so Christians today love that word, right? The truth will set you free. We put that on our cups and our mugs. We hang it as plaques on our wall. We love that idea. Not so then. They didn't get warm and fuzzy when they heard it. They were deeply offended because what Jesus is saying is the truth will set you free. The implication is what? We're not presently free. If I'm going to say, here's what will make you free, the implication is I am not free, and that's their, their opposition. What do you mean we're not free? And that's what they'll say. They said to him, verse 33, we are the offspring of Abraham and have never been slave to anyone. How is it that you say you will become free? So that's their question. What do you mean the truth is going to set us free? We're children of Abraham. We've never been slaves to anyone. We are the free sons of Abraham. So Jesus is going to respond. And he's going to basically say, you are the physical seed and descendants of Abraham. You are his physical offspring. But you be sure you are not Abraham's children. In fact, that's what he says in verse 38. I speak of what I've seen from my father, and you do what you have heard from your father. And so Jesus is dropping a huge hint here. He's saying, you think you're Abraham's children, but you're not. In fact, I do what I see my father do, and you do what your father does. And so whoever their father is, is a much more sinister and different father than what they thought. And so they respond, verse 39, Abraham is our father. 
And Jesus said to them, If you were Abraham's children, you would do the works Abraham did. But now you seek to kill me, a man who has told you the truth that I heard from God. This is not what Abraham did. You are doing the works your father did. So Jesus responds. And he says, Listen, if you were really the children of Abraham, Abraham loved God, you hate me and want to kill me. That's not what Abraham did. You're doing what your father does. So, so what he's implying is that their father is one who's out to kill, is a murderer, and their father is not who they think it is. This is huge. Because what Jesus is basically saying is, spiritually, you're fatherless. You're illegitimate children. You're orphans in terms of who your spiritual father is. He's sort of pulling out the rug from under them and saying, your lineage does not go back to who you think it does. There's questions about your first birth and who your father is. And that sets them off. In fact, listen to how low they go and what they say back. Verse 41. They said to him, We were not born of sexual immorality. We have one father, even God. So here's what they're saying. They're going, Jesus, you're going to talk to us about your first birth? You're going to talk to us about not knowing who dad really is, that there's suspicion about our birth? We were not born of sexual immorality. We weren't born of fornication. There were no rumors about our birth. There's no stories about a pregnant teenage mom and you're not really sure who dad is. And, and Jesus, you were, let's be honest, adopted by Carpenter Joe at best. We are not born of sexual immorality. We're we're the children of God. God is our Father. And so Jesus will respond. And this is what he says. If God were your Father, you would love me. For I came from God and I am here. I came not of my own accord, but he sent me. Verse 44. You are of your Father the devil. And your will is to do your Father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning. So here's what Jesus says. Twice he's hinted at it, and now he basically drops the bomb on them. And he says to them, your father is the devil. You think you're the children of God. You think you've got this long lineage and history of being God's chosen and God's people. You are spiritually orphaned. You are spiritually fatherless. And if anything, your father is the enemy of God. And you do everything he does. So, I mean, just consider how they would have received that. If you keep reading the story, by the time you get to the end of chapter 8, Jesus has gotten them so angry that they will literally pick up rocks ready to stone him to death. So here's the thing. Jesus looks at this group of religious, Bible-believing, temple-going, moral, decent, upright people and he says to them, you are not the children of who you think you are. In fact, your spiritual birth is that of a very wicked and evil father. You are orphans when it comes to God. That God is not your father. In fact, your father is the devil. And as you keep reading through the scriptures, you find that that same verdict, that same statement and that same reality is true for all of us, that all of us, even those of us who grew up in the church, even those of us who are basically born into, delivered in the Sunday school, we think 
We've got a lineage and a heritage. And yet Jesus would say, you're children of the devil. That you do what your father does. In fact, in Ephesians 2, Paul will say that by birth, we are sons of disobedience. In Ephesians 2, he'll go on to say that we are children of wrath. That's why David says in Psalm 51, In sin did my mother conceive me. In iniquity was I brought forth. That's why we are called objects by birth, by nature, and by choice of God's wrath. That's why 1 John 3, John will look at the people and say, You know why you keep sinning? Because you do what your father does, and you carry out his desires, and all those who continue to sin are children of the enemy. So consider your first birth. By your first birth, you were born to a wicked father, spiritually orphaned, left to die, rebellious against God by sin in nature and in choice, at rebellion, at enmity with God. Here's what I want you to hear. Some of us think that because we were in the church from our youngest of age, that we are the natural children of God. That we were somehow born into the nursery of God's family. That is not the case. God only has one natural son. John 3.16 For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. God has one natural son, that's Jesus Christ. And every other child is a child that he found is a child that comes from a different home, a child that he brought in and made his own. You see, the truth of our first birth is that all of us are born fatherless when it comes towards God. That we were born in rebellion, at enmity, and wicked and against God. But of course, every week in this series, we've come to one place, the cross. The cross of Jesus Christ, and we find there good news over and over and over again. Gospel news. Right, so just review some of the things we've considered together. We said that when we came to the cross, Jesus Christ died for our propitiation. That is that big word that means that God's wrath was rightly on us. His anger and hatred for our sin. God hated us in our sin, but Jesus stood in our place and absorbed God's wrath, and Jesus drank from the bitter cup of God's wrath so that we might, even today, drink from the sweet cup of God's mercy. We talk through the doctrine of expiation, the idea that our sins were removed from us, that by our sin we were defiled and dirty and unclean and filthy. By the sins we had committed and the sins committed against us, we were unclean. And yet Jesus Christ was crucified, so that our sins were taken away and by his blood we were washed clean. We talk through the idea of redemption. That we, John 8, all who sin are slaves to sin. We had shackles on our hands and chains on our feet. And Jesus came as our redeemer and set us free. We talked about ransom. That we owed a debt we could not pay and Jesus came and paid a debt he did not owe. He paid our ransom through, First Peter, his precious blood. Two weeks ago we talked about justification. That we stood before God the judge. The verdict was clear. Our sin and our crimes were many. And yet God shouted, 
not guilty. And we exchanged places with Christ, and he who knew no sin became sin for us, and we became the righteousness of God. And yet what I want you to hear today is that what we're considering is deeper and higher and sweeter still. Because today we're saying we've been adopted. That, that we've been made the children of God. Not just rightly related to God like a judge and the criminal, but declared to be sons, to declared to be daughters. Throughout this series, we've stood in lots of different settings, right? So we've stood in the temple and watched the sacrifices. Or we've stood in the courtroom and heard the verdict. Or we stood in the marketplace and watched our debt paid. This week, we've been brought home. Now you're standing in God's house as God's child. Because hear me, it is one thing to cleanse someone from their filth. It's entirely something more to bring that someone into your house. Even you might go to a street and help cleanse someone, but who brings them home? It is one thing to set a slave free. Even you might work for justice to set slaves free. It is something even more to bring that slave home and call him son. It is one thing to pay a debt for someone who is indebted. It is something more to bring them home and write them into the will and give them an inheritance with the sons. It's one thing for a judge to look on you and declare you not guilty. It's something more for the judge to put down the gavel, step away from the bench, take off the magisterial robes, come to you, draw you in and say, my child. Justification, expiation, reconciliation, redemption, beautiful, glorious, wonderful. Adoption, breathtaking. Because you have now been brought home as the children of God. And that's what happened at the cross. This is why Ephesians 1, 5 and 6, hear it. In love, he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace. In love, he predestined us for adoption as his sons through Jesus Christ, according to his will, to the praise of his glorious grace. You know what that means? Adoption is not man's idea. That from before the beginning, God had destined, predestined us to be adopted as sons through Jesus Christ. And, and why does he do it? Not because we were the cutest or the brightest or because we showed the most potential or he saw the best in us. God is not the father who walked down the orphanage and looked for the child that was standing up in the crib or had the best background or showed the most potential of promise. God adopted children that showed no promise, had no worth, had no potential, and he made them his own. Why? According to the purpose of his will. That's Ephesians 1. To the praise of his glorious grace. For no reason but that that God is gracious 
gloriously gracious, and His adoption of you is by His will. That means that your adoption does not stand on anything you do, but according to His will. And if His will is fixed and unchanging, so is your adoption. He can no more kick you out of the home once you're in as He can send away Jesus Christ. Because you are now His children, adopted by His will, according to His glorious grace. Here, John 1, verses 12 and 13. But to all who did receive Jesus, who believed in His name, He gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. John says, Jesus came so that all who believed in His name would be given the right to become children of God. Not born of blood, not pushed out of the womb, but by your first birth, you're children of wrath. By your new birth, you're children of God. That's what it means to be born again. Born again to a new father. Children of God. Romans 8, verse 15 and 16. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit Himself bears witness to our spirit that we are the children of God. So you hear that? Even now, maybe the Holy Spirit is confirming in your heart that you are a child of God. That's what Romans says happens. The Spirit bears witness to our spirit that we are the children of God. Or perhaps the Spirit is convicting you now, asking you, are you God's child? Has this happened for you? Galatians 4, the passage Abby read for us. For in the fullness of time, God sent forth His Son, born of a woman, to redeem us so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the Spirit of His Son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, an heir through God. I'll read you one more. 1 John 3, 1 and 2. This is what John says to his church. He says, See what kind of love the Father has given to us that we should be called children of God. And so we are. And then he says, Beloved, we are God's children now. So what John's saying is, See, behold the size of the love of God. Behold what manner of love God has given to us that we should be called the children of God. That through Christ's death on the cross, we have been adopted into the family of God. Here's what I want to do now with our remaining time. I want to give you three implications of our adoption. If all of this is true, I want to give you three implications for what this means. If through Christ crucified we have been adopted into the family of God, one... It means that we have a new father and a new brother. Please let your heart swim in this. It means we have a new father and a new brother. That through adoption, God took us away from our fanged father and made us his own so that we now have a new father in God and a new brother in Jesus. Do you know that Romans and Hebrews actually calls Jesus our brother? Hebrews 2 says that Jesus is not ashamed to call us his brothers. Do you know who Jesus is? 
Jesus is the true and better older brother you had always wanted. Right? Right? You remember the story of the prodigal son. The story is of the father who has one wayward son who goes and spends all he has on wine and women and ends up in the pigsty. And the older brother stays at home and is angry. Let me tell you who the brother Jesus is. Jesus is the brother who stands out on the porch with the father longing for the child to return. And he's the older brother who leaves the home at great cost to himself and finds his brother and brings him home to be reunited with dad. That's your brother. We have a new father and a new brother. So here's what that means. That means we can now approach the father just like our brother Jesus. Think of that. When you're adopted into a home, all the children have equal access to dad. So when we've been adopted into God's family, that means you now approach the father just like your brother Jesus does. That means you can approach God with all the boldness and all the confidence and all the joy and all the freedom with which your brother approaches Jesus. That Jesus' father is now your father and he relates to you the same way. In the scriptures, Jesus is the first person to call God father. Think of that. No one else dared to do that before. And yet what Jesus does is now gives that right and that privilege to us. Let me give you an example. If you were allowed today to meet the president and you went to him and you shook his hand, you might address him as Mr. President. You might address him as Sir. You might even stand speechless. But let me tell you what you wouldn't do. You wouldn't hug him and go, Barack, so good to see you. Because you don't have the right. You don't have the basis. You don't have the relationship to do so. This is why to this day, Muslims will say it is an outrage to call God Father. No man should presume to do that. The name Father for God is an exclusively Christian idea. And the only reason we do it is because our brother said we could. Our brother told us we're now his brothers. We have the same Father so that now we get to say our Father. Do you know that every time you pray, the only reason you can pray is on the basis of adoption. That's it. Every time you say Father anything, you do so because Jesus Christ died for you. The gospel is present every time you pray. Because now we have access to the Father just like our brother. And do you know what else it means? It means the Father relates to us just like he does to his son. When you've been adopted into a home, not only do all the children get to access dad, but now all of the children are dad's sons and daughters. And so that means that the father sees you just like he does his son. Think of that. The father sees you just like he does his son. If you're standing on the outside of adoption looking in, one of the questions you always ask, I read this book called Adopted for Life. It's an excellent book. I want to recommend it to you. He gives the story of one of the questions people are always wondering is, will they treat both the sons the same way, all the children the same way? And any good parent who adopts, when you look, you can't distinguish who's the adopted child and who's the natural child. 
And if that's true in man, how much more with our Father in heaven? Your Father sees you like he sees his own Son, Jesus Christ. He relates to you like he does to his Son, so that now it's over you. Think of this. That God says, like he said over Jesus at his baptism, you are my beloved child. With you, I am well pleased. What would it be like to meditate on the thought that God says over you, you're my child, with you, I am well pleased. And it means that everything Christ has is now yours. You have the benefit of being a son so that the Father treats you no different than Jesus himself. In fact, you are now written into the will. Do you know that the scriptures, we don't have time for it, but the scriptures say you are now co-heirs with Christ, that you will inherit everything that was for Jesus, and you share in that inheritance like the brothers. Think of that. This pastor named John Piper out in Minnesota had four sons. He adopted an African-American girl. And he tells the story of this little girl, Talitha, of him and his wife going to rewrite their will so that now Talitha shares equally with the sons. That's what happens in adoption. That God has no stepchildren or or second-class children, but he treats us like Christ. This is why, if you noticed, I kept saying so far the adoption of sons. That's not because I'm sexist, right? Especially coming out of last week. It's not because I'm sexist. I'm saying to you, the scriptures call you the adoption of sons. Here's why. Precisely because it's not sexist. Because in that world and in that day, everyone knew only sons received an inheritance. And if Paul said you received adoption as sons and daughters, well then the thought would be maybe we're equal before God as children, but not equal in terms of inheritance. But what Paul says is all of you, regardless of gender, You've received the adoption of sons. That means all of us get an equal inheritance with Christ so that everything Christ is going to receive, you and I will receive as well. In adoption, we have a new father and a new brother. But let me give you one more. In adoption, we have a new nature. A new nature. We're going to talk in a few minutes about actual adoption and how we can reflect God's gospel through it. But let me tell you how God's adoption is even greater than anything we could do. When you adopt a child, you bring them into your home, you give them a new name, you give them a new family, you give them a new inheritance. But one thing you can't do is give them a new nature. You can't infuse your DNA into them. You can't infuse your genes into them. You can't cause them to somehow grow up and look like you. But here's what God does in his adoption. Galatians 3 says that when we were adopted, God put his Holy Spirit into us. Romans says so that we were predestined to be conformed into the image of Jesus. 1 Peter says we were destined to share in the divine nature so that the Holy Spirit now resides in all the sons and daughters of God and is conforming us to look like our older brother. Think of that. You've not just been brought home. God is infusing his genes and DNA into you through the Holy Spirit so that you now bear a family resemblance. That you look less and less like your fanged father and you look more and more and more like your older brother, Jesus Christ. How stunning is God's adoption of us. 
We have a new father and a new brother. We have a new nature. And lastly, we have a new family. We have a new family. When you're adopted, what happens? Not only do you get a new father, but you get a new family. Because all the children of your father now become who? Your siblings, your brothers and sisters. When you are adopted into God's family, you get a new father and a new family. In this book that I told you, Adopted for Life, the man had adopted two sons from Russia. And he said when he got home, one of the questions he always got is, are they brothers? And so he would respond, sort of clenching his fest, I mean, chin, having to say a prayer at that question, but he would respond saying, yes, they are my sons. And then he would get another question. Yes, yes, but are they really brothers? Right, because that's what we want to know. Is there something physical that connects them? And he said, what he began to realize is that question about adoption is as old as the gospel itself. Because when Paul started seeing the gospel go out and the Jewish people who had come to faith in Jesus now saw pig flesh eating, idol worshipping, pagan Gentiles coming in, what's their question? Paul, are they our brothers? And Paul would say yes. And then what was their question? No, no. Are they really our brothers. I mean, they would even ask, do they bear the mark? Do they have circumcision? Are they, are they really our brothers? And what would Paul have to say? Colossians, he says, they have been circumcised with a circumcision that is not of the hands. They have been circumcised with Christ. They are really our brothers. So when a Jew in the first century looked at a Gentile man and said, brother, it's not the way we say bro. It meant you are now here. You're, you're my brother. This is real. You have been into the family of God so that now Abraham is your dad and mine. So here's what I want to say to us. 2,000 years later, we're asking the exact same question. Like you come to Seven Mile Road, but here's my question to you. Are these people really brothers and sisters? You're connected to them. You can say, hi sister, hi brother, but I'm asking you, are they really your brothers and sisters? Is Seven Mile Road your family? Do you have one God now, a new father, and are these brothers and sisters? If you're a guest with us or a visitor, we love that you're here. If you're not a Christian, we love that you're here and checking this church out and, and seeing what it means to be a Christian. That's wonderful. But if you're here, then I want to push you. If, if you can come in and go out and come in and go out, it means that you still see church as a place to go and not a people to belong to. If you can come in and go out, and if this is based on your convenience, that makes you a great consumer but a really lousy sibling. Because what we want and need through the gospel is brothers and sisters who say, if this part is real, then this part's real. And if this part's not real, this part's not real. If we really have been adopted to God and you believe that to be true, then we really have been made family and that part has to be true. So ask yourself, has God connected me to a family? Are these my brothers and sisters so that I'm here not just for me, but I've got brothers and sisters to love and to serve. And we are now truly family, adopted into the family of God. 
And here's the last thing I want us to consider. We've got three big words here we use all the time. Gospel, community, mission. This is the gospel. You've been adopted into the family of God. And it leads to community. That we are now brothers and sisters reconciled to God and reconciled to one another. But we're also called to mission. 1 Corinthians 5 says, We who have been reconciled to God are now given the ministry of reconciliation. So if we've been adopted, we are to be people who bring people into the family of God and adopt. So here's my simple prayer, and I say it as plainly as I can. I'm praying that God would raise a culture of adoption here at Seven Mile Road. That we would be a people who live out this reality that's happened to us in our lives. That our nursery one day would be filled with children from every corner of the earth and every corner of this country. And we begin to see with our eyes what it looks like to be God's family. That though we were all born outside of the home, we have been brought in with God as our father, Jesus as our brother, and we as siblings together. So today as we close, here's what I want to do. I've asked Jim and Lena to share today. I think Jim's going to come. So we've got a picture of this in flesh and blood, and Jim has been gracious and willing to actually share a story of this. So even if you forget everything I've said for the last whatever, would you hear how this takes place in flesh and blood so that we might see the gospel as clear as day? So Jim's going to come. I'm going to invite him to share his story with us. Give him your attention for a moment. So adoption is not something that I really thought about, um, but it's something that's been on Lena's heart for a long time. And so when we were um, seeing each other before marriage, she would always say, you know, adoption is something that I want to do, that I want for us. And, um, and so anytime a guy like me gets a girl like that, you've got to say a lot of things to seal the deal. I'm looking out at you guys, some of you brothers know what I mean. <laughs> so, I would say, yeah, absolutely, that sounds like a great idea. <laughs> and then we got married, and then, you know, we could put aside all those things. Um, and so, uh, as we were living out our married life the first couple of years, we, you know, started trying to have a start family, and that wasn't uh, happening. And so, you know, it got a little bit frustrating and upsetting and, um, and we kept praying a lot about it and then the then the opportunity came for both of us something that was really both of our both of our hearts to go to India um, and we were really excited about that and we left um, work took me there and we experienced a lot and life was just amazing but there was that little knowing that um, that we didn't have children and then we'd get calls from home about this person having a child and that person being pregnant and, and I feel like that started becoming more painful for us. Um, and I would just keep crying out, like, Lord, what, you know, what's that about? Um, and Lena was serving at a, at a ministry where there was a lot of orphan children. Um, and when she would come in, they would just run to her. And as I'd drop her off and I'd come back, I would just get so angry with the Lord. I'd be God, why would you withhold? Like, why would you withhold? Don't you see how good a mother she could be? Um, and so we went through these days, and then... Around the same time, two things happened. My mom came down with a, was diagnosed with stage four cancer, um, and I'm very close to my mom. And then at the same time, a young lady came into Lena's life, a young girl, I'd say, and she had a really difficult life, and she was uh, pregnant. 
And so Lena would come home and just share with me how this relationship she was building with this young woman and um, how they were just really growing close. And I knew what she was thinking, and I was just getting angrier and angrier because I knew the day would come when she'd ask me that question. And so within a week or two, she comes, she says, listen, how about we pray about adopting this child that's going to be born? And I said, heck no, except, you know, we got the CK. Um, and so I was so angry at the thought, and I said, you know, I'm open to adoption, but once we have our own children, right? But again, that was just my pride of saying, listen, it was out of my own charity that I did this. Um, and at the same time, nights I would just be crying for my mom's life, right? She was in stage four cancer, and doctor didn't know whether it was just gonna come out all right. And as I was praying one night, I just really felt convicted the Lord saying, you keep praying to save your mom's life, for me to save your mom's life, why wouldn't you be a part of this redemptive plan that I have? Um, and that really just sort of changed my heart. And so, I, I went to him and I said, all right, let's, let's do this. Um, and then it was just um, on September 19, 2007, I remember, Lena was at the hospital, um, the baby was born, and she calls me and says, um, come, the, the baby's here now. Um, and I just remember driving there, just not sure what, what to make of all of this. And I remember going into the hospital, and it was such a surreal experience because here we have our own room, we have people building on us. There was just one long room with several patients, and in the end, was was ours. And so my my Nehemiah was born, and I remember holding him and just saying, "Lord, give me the courage to do what's right." And I just have to say that how God alone could be the hero of the story, because just a little bit about me, like I, I just remember this when I was in sixth grade, I was on a baseball team. Um, and it was the best baseball team, and I had no, no reason to be on this team. Um, and I remember it was, the, it was the playoffs, and it was the ninth inning, and they were switching up, and they needed an outfielder. And so it was just me and this kid about this size, Ryan was his name, and he had glasses this thick. And I just kept praying, God, let Coach pick Ryan. Let Coach pick Ryan. Let Coach pick Ryan. And then what seemed like an eternity, Coach just looked at both of us, and I could see the pain in his face. And then he said, you. And the finger went at me. And I was like, oh, God. And as I watched out, all I could pray is, Jesus, don't let that ball be hit to me. <laughs> God, don't let it hit my way. And so the one out came, it was good. And the second out came, and it was good. And the third, I said, Jesus, please. Jesus, please. <laughs> and sure enough, that ball was hit. And it was in my direction. And all I could think was to run. <laughs> and I ran, but in the opposite direction. And the ball landed. We lost the game. <laughs> and I remember, you know, those like studs, moms, what are they doing with that kid out there? <laughs> but that's, that's me, one that prays to get out of a situation, one that runs away, does not want the challenge. <laughs> but here I held uh, Nehemiah, and all I could do was, God, why would you choose me for this occasion? Like, why would you choose me for this moment? I could, I could call out a couple <coughs> different names to you. But it had to be that God alone would be the hero of our story. Um, and so we, 
it's not like America where there's a lot of rules that you have to follow. We brought him home with us the <laughs> first week. Um, and now it became, all right, how do we get Nehemiah to be ours? And, and it was just a series of miracles that went from that place. Like, I always say, in India, if you see a child on the street, no one cares. But if you say you want one of them, then it becomes a big deal. And so it was almost an impossible task to, to be able to find an agency in America, to work with an agency in India, and to make sure that that child comes to us. And so we kept praying and praying, Lord, this is on our hearts. I trust that you brought this. Now you've got to bring us through. A week later, I was going for work to another city, and I, and I came across a woman that I had done some work with um, in the nonprofit world. And she came to me and she said, listen, Tom, which is my Christian name, uh, <laughs> I, I am now in charge of the Child Welfare Court in Karnataka. And I said, well, what does that mean? And she said, I sign off on adoptions. And I said, God, only you again. And so I said, Sandesh, I need help. But that was her name. And so she put us in touch with an agency in India, with an agency in America. And then the process uh, came along. And that was September 19th, and then in December we had to leave. And we remember just bringing Nehemiah to, um, to the orphanage and just trusting that the Lord would take care of us. And as we were packing, um, Lena took one of those pregnancy exams and found out that, that we were pregnant, um, which was another miracle in itself. And, <coughs> and so we went, and 10 months later, we went and we brought Nehemiah home with us. Um, and, and you all see him running around and you know him. Um, one of the cool things with this was I had a friend, uh, Mohan, who I became close with in India. And he was a, a driver. And I would try to explain uh, the gospel to him a lot of times. And they just never could connect. Um, but he saw this. He was with me. He, would, he was more than a driver. He was a very close friend. I still keep in touch with him. But he would be the one that... Um, drives me there, picks us up, brings Nehemiah to hospital. And so in India, the driver knows a lot about the story, right? And he finally said, sir, why are you doing this? This is uh, such an amazing thing that you're doing. And then I see, I said, Mohan, you see here, um, you see what happened. Nehemiah's past and Nehemiah's background, all of that has been washed clean, right? Now he belongs to Jim. He belongs to Jim and Lena. And he is Jim and Lena's son, right? So all that I have is his, right? All of my mother, children, and cousins, and all, all are going to be his. And his identity is found in me. Um, that is what Jesus has done for, for me and do for you. He has made us his children. And just like a Jesus said, much better than I can. He, he's washed away all the past. All that I've found is now in Jesus. Um, and it was just an awesome opportunity to be able to share that with Mohan. Um, so Nehemiah is now home with us. Um, he now has an older brother to Elias, older cousin to Hannah and Isaac, multiple girlfriends, Jaylen. And, <laughs> and, uh, and we just praise God. And I can only say God alone is the hero of the story. He's the, he's the fatherless to the orphans, father to the fatherless, and protector of the community.